Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi, it's Annika. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's Speak Up Conversation. Many of us work with professionals from other disciplines in our workplace. This may be within a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary service delivery model. All have their own benefits and challenges. A transdisciplinary approach, having the greatest degree of collaboration, can be complex yet so rewarding. But how does this approach actually look in clinical practice? To chat about how this looks in the early intervention space, I am so pleased to be chatting to part of the transdisciplinary team at Fit Kids Foundation, a not-for-profit early intervention service in Dural, New South Wales. Alan Witzelsberger is the service director and clinical psychologist. Welcome, Alan. Thank you so much for having me today. Anwen Yap is the lead speech pathologist. Hi, Anwen. Hi, everyone. Danielle Shembury is the lead occupational therapist. Welcome, Danielle. Hello, thank you for having me. And last but no means least, hi to Dela Gagassian, speech pathologist. Hi. <laughs> All right, to start with, I'm going to hand a question over to you, Alan, if that's okay. I'm wondering why your service adopted a transdisciplinary approach as compared to a multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary approach. Sure, thanks for that. Um, Look, I think I probably just need to define really quickly the difference between that multidisciplinary and that transdisciplinary approach. I suppose when, when we're studying and through our degrees, we're really taught to sit within a particular traditional discipline space. So, you know, an occupational therapist works on X, Y, Z, a speech pathologist works on X, Y, Z, and a psychologist would work on X, Y, Z. So in that multidisciplinary approach, whilst... There are lots of professionals and from different disciplines working um, together for a child. They are all working in isolation with their own set of goals. And whilst they might come together collaboratively, you know, a few times throughout the year to talk about their own roles and their own goals, um, there is that definite delineation um, between the different disciplines. Where when we're working in that transdisciplinary space, we're actually dissolving some of those traditional boundaries and we're, we're really working across into different disciplines using different skill sets and looking you know at, at skills and children across a broader broader scope. So Anwen I'm wondering how does it actually look in your service? Um, so at, our, at the foundation we, we have group therapy intervention but we also do individualized um, therapy and with our individualized approaches we very much follow a routines-based intervention practice. So it's really thinking about how, you know, me as a speech therapist, how can I support a child's communication within their activities of daily living or to support their regulation as an OT would work on? And then on the flip side, as 
I mean, Daniel can probably comment on this, but, you know, as an OT, how can I support their communication while taking them through these OT goals? And so what do you think, um, Alan, if I hand this back to you, what do you think the, the benefits are for your service in using this approach? I think when you're in that paediatric um, di- disability space, it's really, really important that we're looking at the whole child and not just your own discipline because often you've got a child who presents with very complex needs across that across multiple developmental domains. Um, and if we can look at that whole child, I think we can have a much uh, bigger impact on the over, overall developmental trajectory and close those gaps a lot quicker rather than working in silos um, and just working on single domains. And I think if you think about the family as well and the stress that the added stress of going along to the speechy, to the OT, to the psychologist, to the physio, and we've got all these different professionals, but who's coordinating that and who's Mm -hmm. bringing it all together to work towards a common goal? Um, and if we've got you know, four different disciplines, three or four goals, that's 16 goals. I mean, I wouldn't be able to keep all of that in my head as a professional, let alone a parent that's living with a child with a complex de- disability. And it's probably unlikely that we're going to be able to achieve those 16 goals all at the one time. So if we can bring it together and all work, bring all of our expertise together um, and work towards, you know, three core common goals that are functional and really looking at the needs of the family, I think the likelihood that we're going to have a greater impact is a lot higher. Mm, Absolutely. But there are challenges, I'm sure, because we are trained in our individual um, professions. And I certainly know in speech pathology, we don't get training necessarily in the skill set that perhaps an occupational therapist would use or a physio or a psychologist. So I'm wondering, Anwen, how do you skill up speech pathologists to be able to work in this particular model? So at the foundation, we have a 12-week induction program, which involves a lot of shadowing of both individualised services, but also our group programs. And without individualised services, um, a new grad or an early career speech therapist will shadow both an occupational therapist as well as behaviour support and their um, discipline specific, you know, speech pathology interventions. And this just helps us understand that relationship between our disciplines and to support that ongoing collaboration. So oftentimes our clients, our our children, you know, they will see um, OTs within um, the organisation and so that allows for that ongoing collaboration. Within our group, um, within our group programs, you know, the teams consist of, you know, an OT, a speech therapist, as well as education support. So our early year speech therapists are always placed on a group to learn directly from other clinicians on how to support a child's communication needs. But also within that same group, there are occupational therapists where you're working so closely with them um, that you do, you know, you develop an understanding of their sensory needs within that group setting. And it's really Mm -hmm. lovely. It's a lovely opportunity to be able to carry these same strategies across into your individualized um, sessions because you know the settings are they're different but also you know you might be able to carry them into the childcare setting where it may be a little bit more similar to that group program setting Mm. Um, so lots of collaboration there yeah I mean Danielle I'm so interested um, as you're an occupational therapist obviously what what do you teach speeches what do speeches need to know in that model what do you do you find that is not part of our core training that Um, is really essential for a speech pathologist to then be able to work in that transdisciplinary model and use some of the occupational therapy skill set. 
feel like this is a really loaded question being in a room full of species. <laughs> I promise it's not. <laughs> um, I, look, I, I think that the one thing that often comes up quite often for us, and I think that we will love to talk any species ear off, often is about that sensory approach. And because I guess, as any OT will happily tell you, it is it is at the core of everything we we do, that we love, that we loathe about keeping our bodies safe. And, and obviously, in order to be a social or communicative participant, you know, in any sort of environment, we need to be mindful of those sensory impacts. And I think the, the question that I think that comes up the most or the the thing that I find myself um, supporting speeches with the most tends to be around that um, sensory approach and understanding all of the different aspects of sensory that go beyond what we know. So knowing that there are, you know, eight different senses and knowing that there is an internal sensation that nobody really talks about because it's completely invisible. And, um, and yeah, it's always really a wonderful experience being able to watch both of our professional professions, sorry, um, just really meld together to find that one holistic sort of approach. Um, but that's definitely the one I'd say comes up the most. Mm-hmm. Dela, can I ask you um, about your personal journey then? I don't know what your, what, where you worked prior to coming to this job, but how, as a speech pathologist, what was your journey like being able to develop your skill set so dramatically to be able to work in this model? Yeah, well, I guess I started at the Fit Kids Foundation, so oh, okay. my career has been here. Um, it, I think it was learning from the team on group programs. That's pretty much where you do most of your upskilling, um, learning about things from across disciplines. Um, and with that, yeah, the team support really helps you pick up those skills really nicely. And I guess um, there's always a massive learning curve as a new graduate anyway for anyone, even a speech pathologist working in a sole practitioner role, there's a massive learning curve. How big was that learning curve then if you're not only trying to get around what the speech pathology skill set is, but then also trying to take on board the skill set of other professions at the same time? It must have been huge. Yeah, I guess it's, it's a big learning curve, but I think when you've got a supportive team behind you, um, every step of the way it works and it's really fascinating the OT side of things is really interesting too so when you're motivated to learn about it um, it makes it a lot easier mm, yeah you'd be such a holistic clinician now though I bet and yeah that's awesome now I know that part of what your service has done recently is use this approach within an AAC specific group and and when I'm wondering if I could ask you, why did you decide to pilot an AAC-specific group in the first um, place? So our, I might just give you a bit of background information on the group. So our group is for children who are using communication devices and their families. So our pilot program was two days a week for about two weeks, and the program was three hours each day, of which the first hours the family stayed and supported their child to use their communication device in a range of different activities. Um in terms of why we wanted to create an AAC group. And if Dal, if you wanted to jump in, mm. she, she definitely piloted the idea. Um, so I'll hand it over to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess we wanted to create a space for children who use communication devices to come to where they could have those peer models, but also provide their families um, a place where they could connect with other AAC users. Um, we know that communication is more than just requesting and that's what we wanted this 
program to highlight to families and the other therapists that were supporting the, the group programs, um, how you could do that. Um, and we knew that there's a lot of research out there about that leads to device, what leads to device abandonment. And we wanted to address some of those areas to things like giving families that support network, showing them how they can use their devices in those everyday routines. Um, so we kind of, yeah, tailored that program to meet those needs. Um, and were, were the kids all using different AAC devices? Yeah, so they used a combination of LAMP and Prolo Quotigo. Um, some were using iPads and others had dedicated communication devices. And so, Delara, if I can hand it back to you, what, how did you actually structure the group? How did it, you know, sort of look <laughs> specifically? Yeah, so the first hour that they came in, parents were on site with us um, supporting the children to participate in the range of activities we'd set up. So we had a few stations set up for them. And then our team of therapists, therapy assistants, were moving in between those activities, modelling on the children's devices, um, showing families how they could do it, giving them support. Um, and then after that first hour, we all had a bit of a morning tea together just to show them how the devices could be used in an everyday routine like mm-hmm. mealtimes. Um, then families left and the children were on site for another two hours with us um, where we just modelled their devices in a range of activities, so social games, um, outdoor play, a bit of literacy, we did some shared reading together, some writing experiences, so a few different experiences for them. Um, yep, and we did that over two weeks. Fantastic. And I, I'm so fascinated to know what some of your anecdotal outcomes were. Did you, I mean, I know it's been, a, I don't know, a couple of months since the group has finished, but what are some of the, the outcomes and feedback you've received in regards to the group? Yeah, um, I think the one thing we noticed happening quite often was children started to notice when their peers were using communication devices, they'd stop and look over. Um, Some of them tried to reply back on the same child's device together. Um, Some of them would just stop and listen. So it was just really nice for them to, yeah, to get to see that in action. Um, Our families gave us such lovely feedback and useful feedback for future programs, um, giving them that kind of point where they could connect with other families. So that's kind of the feedback that we got for next time to give them some more time together without the children, just so they could connect and share their experiences. Um, And what about the device abandonment? So what have you, have you found that that issue has resolved? So I know it's I know it's only you know a small amount of time, but what what's the feedback been in regards to that? Yeah, I guess it's too early to comment on device abandonment because these children are still yeah. currently accessing services with us. Um, they were all at different stages of their AAC journey, so some of them had just finished a trial and were applying for a device. Others had had their device for two years, um, so I can't comment on what they'll do in the long term. But for the moment. It, I think they're really, families are optimistic and they want to learn more from each other and want more information. Um, We'll just have to wait and see, um, yeah, in the long term what that looks like. So, so far, so good though. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. Now, Danielle, were there um, occupational therapists involved in that group as well? Yes, um, we, I mean, again, like we we really try, despite having, you know, maybe a more of a communication-based approach or an OT-based approach for our groups to ensure that we're um, putting both of our all of our disciplines into our groups as well 
So what's the, this is just an you know, out of interest mm-hmm. comment, but what, what's the experience of occupational therapists learning how to use and facilitate AAC? Um, I guess uh, the best experience I can provide is from my own experience as well. So um, I, I graduated uni as an OT working in a very similar space in a different organisation um, where I was working very closely with the speech therapists. And I, I mean, look, I can't speak for the curriculum nowadays, but way, way, way back when we weren't given any insight about this sort of stuff. AAC was just three letters. Like they mm-hmm. didn't make you know any difference to us. So it was, it's always been amazingly insightful for us to see it from the professional perspective, whilst at the same time, learning it as a new user as well has been really, really helpful um, because then we kind of, you know, being OTs and, and working from a very participation and function based um, mindset, we're then really looking at, okay, how can we integrate this into the everyday? How can we support this to be something that, you know, that they will use consistently, that they won't abandon, that's easy for mum and dad so that mum and dad are really motivated to use it and that the child finds fun and the other therapists want to engage in and educators. Um, so it's it's really um, it's really eye-opening for us because we, I mean, we do learn how to use it from the speeches and our speeches are wonderful at teaching us these new things. Um, personally, Am I as confident as a speechy would be? Absolutely not. But it's really helpful for me to to just feel like I have another window into that person's level of functioning and how we can support them to participate. Um, and that's really, it's a really empowering as a therapist, um, I mm-hmm. find as well. Mm-hmm. No, that's awesome. Just, yeah, you're so right. To have that OT add-on to just a communication device is just so important and it's just so lovely to see you guys do that. Um, Ellen, I'm going to hand it back to you if that's okay. Um, you, obviously, all of your um, families are dealing with the unique challenge of raising a child with a disability and I'm just really interested in your thoughts um, or your knowledge more so, in regards to what the research is actually saying about the impacts on families of having a child with a disability? Yeah, well, I suppose the, the, research, the research is pretty clear around those impacts on the well-being and the mental health um, of parents or carers with a child with a developmental disability, and they're significantly higher than a parent or carer with a neurotypically developing child. Um, and it affects divorce rates as well, high divorce rates. I mean, they're the stats, but from working closely with families over the last, you know, 12, 14 years, I suppose I can speak a little bit more to my experiences and, you know, what families tell you as well. Often what they want um, is, you know, it's telling you what the impacts are. They're isolated, uh, you know, the, the friendship circles that they did have may fall apart because they're not able to access the, the barbecue or, or the child's birthday party because of fear of judgment of the, their child's behaviour or that constant stress of, is my child, you know, going to climb over the fence? And so it's just overwhelming that they avoid those situations and eventually become isolated um, and, you know, they just don't feel that sense of connectedness with society that they may have already felt previously. Um, and I suppose very much going to that grief cycle as well. We, we see families in those early stages where their child's just been diagnosed and the impacts that that has and that grief 
um, and loss. So, yeah, I think the, the social isolation, that loss of connectedness um, is, is really significant for our mm. families. And, Danielle, if I can hand it on to you, what does your service do then to address some of those needs that families have specifically? Um, I guess we do it from a range of different perspectives. So um, obviously from the therapeutic perspective, we are working very closely in in their homes and in their lives. And, you know, um, know, quite often we might show up to a a family's house and, you know, mum's in her pyjamas still. And it's, you know, although they're often apologetic, it's almost really, I, I find it really lovely when a parent's comfortable enough for me to be such a part of their lives that they'll happily answer the door in their pyjamas and welcome me in and, um, and I think that that idea of providing that acceptance and a safe space and someone's space safe to talk to, I think is really a huge portion of what we do. So there's lots of therapy that we provide one-on-one with the child, but we are there for the whole family. Um, and I mean, as Ellen had said, it can be really isolating. Often when a diagnosis comes in, we have a lot of families who've lost many of their support networks, um, either through, you know, um, family or friends who just don't understand it or are a little afraid or may say things that you know cause disagreements it all happens um so i think it's really helpful for them to have safe people um the other thing that i think we do really well as an organization and i think one of the reasons um i really love being part of this organization is we're so big on our inclusive events um only just on the weekend there was a a ladies night that we ran and it gave an opportunity for mums to be able to just get together with other like-minded people, with other people who could empathise with them and understand that this was such an important night for them to get out of the house and just have fun. Um, family barbecues as well, which are great when you can have a child and the parents don't feel the need to apologise for something that is different to, you know, when they might attend a family barbecue. Um, and I think those opportunities for that connection and that community is something that we really pride ourselves on. Mm. And what sort of feedback, Anwen, do you get from families about those events? Oh, it's always it's always really positive. Um, you know, families feel like it's, you know, a time when they can socialise with other families and they can just breathe without having to worry about their child. You know, as Ellen said, you don't have to worry about, you know, we have a lot of support during these events. So our therapists, you know, we, we show up as a team there to support the family. So, you know, families are they trust us and you know they trust that they can leave their children for a moment to have a chat with you know the mum and they can have that shared experience and that um, time together which is is really lovely to see Um, Mm. and so important as Alan touched on just in regards to mental health and well-being to have those times and I mean it's really sad that unfortunately for these families the reality as it is you guys have described is that set things have to be organised for them to be able to experience those moments of not carrying that huge burden. But um, it would be lovely to see, I'm sure, just that weight off a parent's shoulder during those times, I can imagine. Mm. It's tr- it's tricky though, isn't it? You know, I mean, um, when you're working with with families in in different settings, you know, as a, as a clinician, how do you ensure we don't miss that part? You know, we we come in very much in that child-centred um, lens uh, mm. because that's sort of where our training lends us. Um, and, you know, we're thinking about skills and development and and sometimes that's at the absence of looking at the child within the family unit. Um, so I think, you know, of my learnings over the years, that's probably years, that's probably been 
the biggest is that when we're doing an assessment, we're not just assessing skills of a child. We've got to look beyond that. We've got to look at the child within that family unit and look at those family unit supports, informal and formal supports. And also when we look at informal supports, what community access are they having as a family? What do they do? What does their routines look like? Are they able to get to suing? Can they get to the shops? Are they going to their church group that they used to go to? So I suppose that's something, if I could go back in time and tell myself something, Mm. it would be when I'm doing an assessment to think beyond the clinic um, Mm. and think about everyday life and how we can make this life for this child and family um, more more community or accessible and um, that the quality of that mm. of their life um, the whole family's yeah. life isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. Dela, what would you say your biggest tips would be to other clinicians in terms of working with families um, I think it's ask ask families what they want ask them what it is they're looking for from therapy um, encourage them to think about beyond just their child how are they coping with it um who else is involved in that child's life i think families have this wealth of knowledge about their child and we want them to share it with us and we want them to know that we value that input um yeah i'm also wondering i know you guys are so open and i can't thank you enough for sharing all your your clinical knowledge but how could people get in touch with you guys if they did want to learn a bit more about how you have actually practically put a um, transdisciplinary model in place and how you've practically set up an AAC specific group how could they get in touch with you guys um I guess we so we're on social media um we're on Facebook and on Instagram um if you look up the Fit Kids Foundation um I'm sure we could put some of our emails in the episode notes more than more than happy to field questions by the sounds of it we will put that in the show notes for sure (laughs) um so before we finish up is there anything else you guys might like to add that are you're just sort of little pearls of wisdom that um clinicians working in early intervention might love to hear from you guys get out in the community we you know we and that's probably another learning you know we we are taught about that sort of, you know, very much about scientific evidence-based practice, which happens in, in a clinic. And that, you know, that gives us a nice sound grounding. But we live in, we live in society. We live in these natural settings, in these everyday routines. So the more we can think about embedding that knowledge and skill set and scientific evidence within everyday routines, the bigger impact we're going to have on children and family. Well said, Alan, well said. I guess to that as well, like not underestimating the parents' involvement, you know, you you know, typically in a therapeutic, you know, with our service living, you, know, you spend an hour with the child, but, you know, if you're spending most of that time, you know, directly with the child, that's only an hour in their life. But whereas if you spend most of the hour, you know, building the family's capacity to support their child, you know, that your intervention goes beyond that one hour block. It goes beyond your clinical um, time. It kind of, you know, ripples across their life which is so important absolutely what about you Danielle what's your Um, pearl of wisdom for everybody I think for me it's it's to always be on a journey to of learning you know to accept that you are always going to be learning new things and I think as well just as importantly unlearning um because like thinking about the way that the whole world has changed over the last two to three years as well, which means that our practices are going to change and our families' responses and the way that they 
um, integrate in, within the communities, it's all going to be different and be willing to just adapt with that change and, you know, step into it, um, I think is really, really important. The more I get into my career, the less I feel I know and the more comfortable with it that I am. Mm. I think that that propels me forward to just continue growing. That's so well said. We don't know everything and so never pretend that you do. <laughs> um, Dela, what about you? What would be maybe a pearl of wisdom that you could provide to other um, early intervention speech pathologists? Um, I think along the same lines of what um, Anwin and Danielle have said, it's th- consider the parental involvement in everything that you do. Um, and perhaps even look, look towards your team. Your team is such a great asset. Um, they offer such different insights and experiences. Um, yeah, definitely take on a team approach. And I think obviously um, a really well-functioning team is absolutely critical, isn't it, to running this model of service delivery. If you don't have that supportive, well-functioning team, I, I just don't think it's possible. Would you agree? <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) Well, an absolute enormous thank you to you all for being so willing to share your practice knowledge. Um, Practice knowledge to me is equally as important as research. um, And I'm just so thrilled that you are so willing to share um, your story of how your service works with us all. So keep up the awesome work. You're doing some fantastic work supporting children and families. And I just wanted to wish you guys all the best for the remainder of the year. Thank you so much, Annika. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Annika. And thank you to everyone for tuning in. Have a great week ahead and we will be back again next Wednesday with another Speak Up Conversation. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in. And bye for now.